Man, I'm really excited about this series we're kicking off uh, this week that we're calling Contenders, uh, based on the book of Jude. It's a really, really small book. It's actually only one chapter, the whole thing. Uh, but we're going to take two weeks to cover it because there's a lot of information uh, that's packed in here. And more than just sharing that information, the, the approach we're going to take is the approach we always try to take uh, here at Valley, and that is emphasize application. Instead of just leaving here today, leaving your campus in Poughkeepsie uh, or online, you know, finishing up with a bunch of good Bible information and being the same person, instead we're going to focus in this series about application. What is this saying? How do we apply it to our lives? So it's not about information, filling notebooks. It's about application, filling our hearts and living it out in our lives. So we're calling this series Contender as we look at Contenders as we look at uh, this book of Jude. And, and you know, this book of Jude, you can find it in your Bible. It's right before the book of Revelation. It's funny, everybody always asks, hey, what about the book of Revelation? What does this mean? What does that mean? I've never had anyone ask, what does the book of Jude mean? And, and uh, the reality is I think most Christians are more familiar with the song Jude by the Beatles than they are the book of Jude in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? Na, 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 hey Jude. Well, hopefully by the time we're done with this series next week, you'll be even as for just as familiar uh, with the book of Jude as well. So actually the name Jude uh, is pretty interesting. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. He, he, Joseph and Mary were his parents. Uh, and he was, Jesus had a bunch of other siblings. In fact, they put those notes in your uh, uh, Valley app on your phone. You can read those scripture references that talk about Jesus' other sibs. He had a bunch of sibs. But can you imagine for just a minute, uh, actually his name was Judas, and he changed it to Jude because there was that one guy named Judas just screwed it up for everybody and uh, I've never met anyone who named their son I want to name my son Judas just messed it up so even Judas Jesus's half-brother because Joseph was his dad not God the father uh, he went by Jude instead and can you imagine just growing up (laughs) knowing your older brother was perfect Jesus is your older brother. I mean, you just know, like, mom, dad, you like him better than you like me. Can you just imagine that kind of pressure, that that your older sibling was perfect? If you can't imagine that, all you got to do is call my sister, who's younger than me, and she'll tell you what that's like. No, I'm just kidding. She'll be like, what? What in the world are you talking about? So Jude, not only Jude was one of Jesus' half-brothers, James, the epistle, uh, the New Testament book of James was also another one of Jesus' half-brothers. Uh, Jude and James were brothers, full blood. And uh, it's interesting, neither one of them believed Jesus was the Messiah until after his resurrection when he walked through the wall. And then all of a sudden, whoop, they believe. And so Jude writes this letter, uh, and it's a short one, and we really wanted desperately to write to God's people about how how glorious their salvation was, but he couldn't because the church was facing a, a real pressing issue. People were beginning to creep into the church that unnoticed, and they were causing harm and leading Christians astray. And, and so G, uh, Jude here is calling Christians to fight, to contend for the faith. So what I want to do is just uh, read the first 19 verses, and I'm going to do it on my phone here because the Bible, if I read it, write it out of the Bible right now, I'd be playing the slide trombone, but uh, phone gives me a little bit better view 
there in backlighting. So let me read the first 19 verses, and then the rest of our time together today, we'll unpack these first 19 verses in the book of Jude. So it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. He's referencing, I'm his brother, I'm Jesus's half-brother. And it's interesting, he doesn't say brother, though. You know, it's so interesting. So many times we get so familiar with God and we're like, you know, he's our father and all this. But here's Jude. You would think he could really pull rank, but instead he doesn't even say Jesus is my half-brother. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Humility. A servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, this great salvation, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. That's where we get the title of this series, Contenders, which by the way, we're renaming our whole men's ministry as well contenders based on this verse that in this passage in Jude, really cool contenders uh, for our men's ministry. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, and now he's going to talk about these that have crept into the church. And he's going to explain from like a bunch of different perspectives and a bunch of different Old Testament stories how serious it is what's happening in the church. He says, whose individ- individuals whose con- uh, condemnation was written a long time ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ for our only sovereign Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example for those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, he's talking about an angel now in this situation, when he was, dis- when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not, find him, did not himself dare to condemn him or slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars from whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, 
the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the uh, defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These people are grumblers and they're fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. And that's a capital S, the Holy Spirit, as we've talked about in our previous series. So there's a lot going on here, a lot of uh, references back to Old Testament stories as illustrations, negative, cautionary tales for us to learn from. And so uh, this message, as we start off, and we'll tackle the rest of, of the book of Jude, the remaining verses next week, uh, but, but this message is really about the fact that some things never change. That the same issues that we're facing Christians 2,000 years ago, they're facing you and I today. And so really this message, I want to kind of apply what we just read, explain some of it, and apply it to our lives. There are three things that never change, three things that are consistent, three things that just never change. Some are good, some are bad, but there are three things that Jude talks about that just never change. We're facing those, that the same things are with us today. The first is this, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has not changed and should not ever change. Let's look at it again. Jude 1, 1 through 3. Jude, a servant of the Lord, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who have been called, and again, this is addressed to Christians, followers of Christ, who are loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy and peace and love be yours in abundance. He goes on and it says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled, in other words, the Holy Spirit was changing his mind, to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Contend, be a contender. Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So he says, be a contender. There's a couple of things here I, I think that are important for us to notice and really unpack. Uh, the first is this, when it talks about the gospel, it hasn't ever changed. It's been, uh, it has been once and for all entrusted to the saints. Once and for all, there's nothing new. There's nothing new about the gospel. The, the scripture that we have, this is the totality of, of the revelation. God gives insight into it, but there's, there's no new scripture being written. And, and although you know, National Geographic is going to come out with some documentary every year around Easter, the lost book, it, it, was, it wasn't lost. It was rejected from the canon of scripture. So, so there's, there's nothing new, once and for all. And so it's really important that we understand this. There's no new revelation and there's no new morality. There's no new revelation. Someone comes up to you in the Walmart parking lot and begins to solicit you. Hey, did you know, by the way, that God uh, is not father, God is female? No, sorry, it's not what the Bible says. Eh, don't really want to talk about that. Thank you very much. Get in the car, go home. There, there's no new revelation. Right now, I, I read recently, there's, there's four or five men on planet Earth right now in 2018 that have declared themselves the Messiah, the Son of God, that they're actually deity. And they have a bunch of followers. But that completely violates, again, what Jude's talking about here. 2,000 years ago, crazy revelation stuff was going on. And also, 
2018. There's no new revelation. There's no new morality. You know, sometimes hear Christians say a lot of times about things that are really, really clear in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, oh, that was then, this is now. No, Jude says, "Uh uh-uh, there's no new revelation. There's no new morality. It is what it is. Not that was then, this is now. God has not changed his mind. What he says is this is what's right and this is what's wrong. He hasn't changed his mind. So the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ, these are things that never change. And I put some extra notes, by the way, uh, in your app, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, and 2 John chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, that talk more about this whole idea, about it's just not, never going to change. The gospel's not going to change. People were trying to change it 2,000 years ago from, from what we understand is the essence of the good news, contend for the faith, the Christian faith. People trying to change it in 2018 as well. And, and here's the, the next point that I think is important. The gospel's worth fighting for. The gospel is worth contending for. Contend for the faith. That's what Jude says, contend for the faith. Again, that's why we call this, this, this short micro-series, if you will, mini-series, contenders. And, and that's why I just talked to some of the guys on staff and all, and, and we're just labeling, we're going to rename our whole men's ministry here, contenders, because we're contending for our faith, we're contending for our families, we're, we're, we're contending to, to be the men that God's called us to be. So Sisters United is our women's ministry. Contenders from this point forward is going to be our men's ministry here at Valley. And so it asks, you know, what is the faith that we're to contend for? Uh, and, and I put this together. Uh, this is a, a good explanation of what is the faith that we're supposed to contend for. Because there's different aspects of the faith. It's important that we understand this. So let me, let me uh, kind of unpack this for just a second. First of all, we have uh, the essentials of the faith. The essentials of the faith are the trinity, the depravity of man, the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is coming back. Those are all the essentials. You, in here, you, you could put like the Apostles' Creed. You believe in the Apostles' Creed. That's, that's one of the, the foundational, essential uh, statements of faith of Christianity for, for uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years. Uh, the essentials, but then there are convictions. Uh, convictions, the, well, let me just talk a little bit more about the essentials. Uh, and the essentials, these are essential doctrines that answer the primarily three questions uh, and, and that separate Christianity from non-Christian faith. And that is this, in the essentials, it answers the question, who is Jesus? And then answers the question, what did he do on the cross? What was he doing on the cross? What was the cross all about? And, and then did he rise again? foundational right there. It's all about Jesus and the nature of salvation. Convictions are beliefs that separate denominations uh, and and impact the health and vitality of churches. So in here are all different kind of Protestant denominations. Agree on the essentials, that's the Christian faith, but in here are all kinds of different distinctions that separate uh, groups of Christians and and, uh, They're important, but they're not as important as this. They're not non-negotiable. The essentials are non-negotiable. Convictions, uh, they can be held and they can also be rejected. Uh, and, And convictions, then we go with opinions. Everyone's got a lot of opinions. I've got opinions, you've got opinions. And then we have questions. Not everyone has everything clear in their mind, not not someone on television, some great Christian author. And so we all have questions. And so here's the problem. 
Here's the problem that happens in churches so many times. When we begin to take convictions and opinions and questions, and we begin to push them down here and say those are essentials. That's where all the problems come in Christian churches. When, when we begin to hold to convictions and we say that's as important as the deity of Jesus Christ. In other words, let me give you an example of this real quick. You know, sometimes uh, people say, you know, I just love the old hymns of the church. We need to just get back to that awe and that reverence, you know, and just organ music. Boy, wouldn't that just be great? Now, here's the hilarious thing that, that people, when they say that, just don't really understand. It's kind of ignorance. 500 years ago, there was no organ music. Everything was really like Gregorian chant. And it was Martin Luther who felt like worship was a really good thing. Singing collectively as a congregation was a good thing because the congregation wasn't allowed to sing 500 years ago. It started with the Protestant Reformation. And he actually took the piano, which was in like bars and all, and brought it into the church and actually took the melodies of bar songs and put Christian lyrics to those melodies, those are the first hymns that you and I know. And it was incredibly controversial. In fact, went to war about it, the Protestants and the Catholics over those issues and many others. And now people are like, well, you know, I just believe church music, God intends for it to be on the piano or on the, the organ. 500 years ago, that was like total, it's total opinion. But through the years, people have pushed it into these essentials. My, fa- my grandfather grew up in a Christian denomination called uh, Church of Christ. They didn't believe there should be any instruments at all in church, and so everything was a cappella. And that's a conviction or an opinion, but it's not an essential. And we get into all kinds of problems when we confuse uh, convictions, opinions, and even questions that we may have that we don't understand about, and we push them down to, if I don't understand this, then this can't be. And so this is worth contending for, these essentials. This is the faith that we are to contend for. What's confusing to those that are outside of the Christian church in the world is when we make convictions and opinions and questions out to be essentials. Causes so much trouble. And so let me put it this way. You and I are called to contend for the faith inside the church. Inside the church, we're to contend for the faith. We need to know what that's all about. That's why even in growth track that we have, uh, the second Sunday of every single month in, in 201, the second step, that we talk about the essentials of the Christian faith. The essentials of the Christian faith. We're to contend for the faith inside the church, and, and you can sign up for that if you haven't taken growth track. But explain the faith outside the church. And can I put it this way, in a gracious and loving way. We're to contend for the faith inside the church, but we're to explain the faith to those that are outside of the church. And so one thing that's never going to change, never going to change, and that is the gospel. The methods are, the message cannot change. The methodology, it may be organs 500 years ago. It, it may be you know, electric guitars in 2018. Who knows what it's going to be if Christ doesn't return 100, 1,000 years from now. But it's not an essential. The essentials don't change. We need to contend for the faith in the church and explain the faith outside the church. Here's the second thing that's never going to change. Sheep in, I'm sorry, wolves in sheep's clothing. 
wolves in sheep's clothing. Let's look at this passage again in Jude. I'll unpack a little bit of it as we go through it. Uh, in, beginning in verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Again, he's talking about in the Christian church. He's not talking about out there. He's talking about in the Christian church. They've slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. He goes, that's one way you can tell they're immoral. They do not follow God's morality, which has not changed. It is what it is, not that was then, this is now. License for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. Then he goes on in the next verse, verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt. So now he's going to show three illustrations, and let me then, I'll read this, and then we'll summarize what these illustrations are about. Let me remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, that was by Moses, but later destroyed those who did not believe because they did not believe, they doubted God. That generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness. It goes on and says, And the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. book of Revelation talks about this. Well, One-third of the angels before creation of man, uh, right about the time of creation that they rebelled against God and God hurled them down uh, onto earth. Don't have time to get into all that right now. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. It goes on and it says, and in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and to perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life. Sodom and Gomorrah, remember Abraham and Lot? They, they, they're uh, families were getting too big, and so they felt like they needed to divide because they're just uh, getting into all kinds of conflict with one another. Abraham said, you choose. Lot said, I want to go to that, that area where the cities are, Sodom and Gomorrah. And it turns out what started really well turns out into total destruction, total destruction that God brings upon them because of the immorality and because of the sin. All three of these examples that are given here uh, that Jude talks about. Basically, I could sum up this way, and that's this. A good start is no guarantee of a happy ending. Not, not for the children of Israel being led out of Egypt. Not for the angels at the time of creation. And not for Sodom and Gomorrah. It all started out really, really good, but it went off the rails. And what Jude is saying here is, think about how you're walking. Consider the direction of your life because a good start is no guarantee of a happy ending. I, I, I know so many Christians, you know, from my vantage point of 28 years as a pastor, so many that started out with great, strong faith in Christ, and they're not even walking with God today. They were on fire for God, if you want to put it that way, and they're not even walking with Jesus today. A good start is no guarantee of a happy ending. In fact, he goes on and he explains this a little bit more. We'll just jump down into the 12th verse of Jude and, and, and says, these people are blemishes at your love feast. Again, they're, they're, they're talking about when they break bread, when they have these meals together, you know, as, as Christians, when they come together. Uh, and and uh, he, he said, they're blemishes there. They're right in there among you. They're wolves in sheep's clothing eating with you without the slightest qualm. And then this is kind of a clue as to specifically 
the kind of person this is, shepherds who feed only themselves. Shepherd is a picture, especially in the New Testament, of a pastor. They're church leaders. Church leaders that are selfish, self-centered, all about getting ahead. It's all about me. Shepherds who feed only themselves. And then I love this descriptive language. They're clouds without rain blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They're like, they're deader than dead. There's no fruit in their life. There's no fruit. Fruit of the Spirit that we talked about a few weeks ago. Juicy fruit. There's no fruit in their life. Goes on and says, They are wild waves at the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars. Again, this is pretty interesting. In the book of Revelation, it talks about at the very beginning that Jesus walks among the golden lampstands and he holds the seven stars. I think this is another reference to the pastors, the leaders in some of the, the churches that have gone astray at the time of Jude. Those seven stars, it doesn't mean like they're a superstar. It's just a picture of the, the pastor, the, the lead servant, if you will, in each of those churches. Jude uses the same analogy or allegory or symbolism uh, that, that John the, used in Revelation. He goes, they're wandering stars. They're not ones that, that Jesus is holding in his hands from whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. This is an Old Testament character, Enoch, and it's a reference to something that he said. See the Lord coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, goes on and says, to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness, and all of them the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. He's like, you, you can tell the fruit of their lives. They don't have fruit at all. They're fruitless trees. They're clouds without rain. This is what Enoch, Enoch you know, he, he's saying God's going to bring judgment upon these wolves in sheep's clothing that have crept into the church. Goes on and says, These people are grumblers and fault finders. You know, those aren't spiritual gifts, folks. Those aren't from the Holy Spirit, being a grumbler and a complainer and finding fault. That is not a spiritual gift. It comes from another place, not from God. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. And then it goes on. But dear friends, Judah's like, now listen, friends. Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. They're wolves in sheep's clothing is what Jude is saying here. Three, three things, I think, just kind of summarizing this passage, this long, uh, the, these descriptions here, uh, Verses 5 through 7 and 12 through 18. First of all, it says God's enemies usually come disguised as his friends, or at least they say they're his friends. God's enemies usually come disguised as his friends. Again, we're not talking about outside, we're talking about those in the Christian church. The Jews says actually they're enemies. Here's the second thing. They redefine morality. We already touched on that. It is what it is. The gospel doesn't change. Morality doesn't change. There's no new revelation. There's no new morality. It is what it is. They redefine morality. Now, let me just say it this way. As we're reading through this passage, I think it's really important. I don't think you and I should ever use God's word as binoculars 
looking for all the bad sinner people. That's not the purpose of God's Word. It's not using binoculars. Let's try to find everybody who's not living the way that they should. Listen, you know the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can convict you. God's Word hasn't changed. We don't need to use God's Word as binoculars. What we need to use God's Word as is a microscope to look at our own hearts. So this is the wrong time to be thinking about the person next to you. This is the wrong time to be thinking about, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this message. Put those binoculars down. Instead, pick up the microscope of God's Word and allow God's Word to look at your heart. How is it that you're living? Is it consistent with the morality that God expresses in the Scripture? Or have you bought into that lethal lie, oh, that was then, this is now? All of that is to put the microscope on my heart and you to put the microscope on your heart. And if the Holy Spirit shows you a place where you're not living the way that God wants you to, repent, turn around, and stop. And receive God's forgiveness and live the way He wants you to live. Because it's better it's not less. You're not losing. You're gaining. See, God gives us this morality not to make us prove. That's not it. To protect us. To protect us. That, that's why he expresses these things throughout Scripture. And so don't use God's Word as binoculars on others. Use them as a microscope on yourself because one of the things that these wolves in sheep's clothing do is they redefine morality. Here's the next thing. They redefine Jesus. They've redefined Jesus. And you'll find this, that, that people, well, you know, Jesus, he was such a great teacher. Well, no, <laughs> he actually said he was more than that. Well, he, he was just a, he was a prophet was what he was. No, that, that's wolves in sheep's clothing. That's, that's wolves talking through their sheep costume. That's not it at all. Jesus put it real, real clearly. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way. Not a way, not one of many ways. I am the way. This is what got Jesus crucified, was these claims that he made of exclusivity, exclusive claims. I am the way, and I am the truth, and the life. And then listen to how narrow-minded and exclusive this is that Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's not politically correct, but that's what Jesus said, and he wasn't real worried about being politically correct. He was worried about speaking the truth. And he says, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and there are no exceptions. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is what these wolves in sheep's clothing were doing. They were actually saying, well, no, there's all these other things. Oh, no, you, you know, you really don't have to let Jesus be the Lord of your life. You can, just, you can just do what you want. He'll forgive you. It's no big deal. No. Jude says, he starts off, he goes, I wish I could talk to you about how awesome our salvation is, but instead I need to warn you. I need to warn you. Because in many churches there are wolves in sheep's clothing. I've heard it put this way before. Again, I think a lot of this is referencing church leaders, not, not the general person in the seat, but, but church leaders. 
I, I heard it put this way before. I forgot who said this, but it stuck with me. I read this as a young man in my 20s. In every generation, there are those who would preach smoother things than God would allow. I'll never forget that. I forgot who said it, but I'll never forget the quote. In every generation, there are those who would preach smoother things than God would allow. And that's the truth. That's the truth. Wolves in sheep's clothing never changes. Some things never change. The gospel never changes. Wolves in sheep's clothing never change. And then the third thing that Jude talks about, I just kind of put it this way, three things that tempt us to stray. There are three things that he says, these are temptations that that we're going to face. And these three temptations are always going to be there. And he references three people in the Old Testament Three people and and the temptation they fell into that every one of us, we need to be aware of or we can actually fall into the same temptations. And I think it's pretty insightful. Let's look at it again in verse 11 of Jude. Verse 11, it says, Woe to them, and he's he's tying in these these wolves in sheep's clothing that are in the New Testament 2,000 years ago, all the way back even longer into the Old Testament and, and saying, same kind of person same kind of person. And he's showing these three temptations that 2,000 years ago, even on into the Old Testament, 3,000 years ago or longer, 4,005, 2018 as well. Three things that tempt us to stray. He says, woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. I'll explain it in just a minute. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. That's number two. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Those three things, those three temptations that happened in the Old Testament, they were happening 2,000 years ago at the time of the writing of the book of Jude that he's warning Christians about, and it also is happening today. Three things, three temptations that never change. Let's look at them real quick. The way of Cain, the way of Cain, what is that? Trying to approach God my own way. Remember Cain and Abel, two sons of Adam um, and Adam and Eve, and, and they brought offerings to God. Abel brought an animal, a a burnt offering, and Cain brought vegetables. And the inference here is God already told them what he expected, and that was like an animal sacrifice. That's what you have to offer to me. And Cain's like, nah, you know, I'm not going to do that way. I'm going to do it my way, you know. Uh, And you can just kind of hear old Sinatra in the background, I did it my way. And God's like, you're wrong, Cain. And he rejected it. He rejected that offering. Cain was so angry because he wanted to do it his way, approach God his way with that sacrifice, that he went and he murdered his brother, Abel. The way of Cain, trying to approach God my way. So many people that I know in the world today, I have friends, well, you know what? Christian faith is not for me. I'm gonna approach God my way. That's the way of Cain. That's the temptation that we try. I'm going to figure out a way. I'm not going to do it the way Jesus said to it. I'm not going to come to him the way he wants me to. I'm going to try to do it my way. That's the way of Cain. And then Balaam's era. What is Balaam's era? Trying to use God for my own personal gain. Charlatans. Balaam was a prophet for hire. And one of the, one of the other kingdoms, not Israel, hired him to prophesy and to curse the nation of Israel. And, and so he took money for personal gain, not to do God's will, not to do what God wanted to do, not to speak God's word, 
but, but instead to contradict it. And when he tried to curse Israel, God took a hold of his mouth and caused blessings to come out. But he was a prophet for hire. He was trying to use God for his own personal gain, to line his pockets. That's Balaam's error. A lot of, you see, still happens today. Wolves in sheep's clothing, just doing it to fill the bank account. Don't really care about people. Don't spend time with people. Unapproachable. You can't talk to them. You can't touch them. You can't make an appointment. No way. Just lying in the pockets. That's Balaam's error. Trying to use God for my own personal gain. And then Korah's rebellion. Trying to serve God on my own terms. Trying to serve God on my own terms. Korah led a rebellion against Moses in Egypt, in the wilderness after they were led out of Egypt. And he was like, who are you to tell us how we're supposed to live? Who are you, Moses? And he led a rebellion. God struck him dead because of it. And all those that were following him. Korah's rebellion, trying to serve God on my own terms. In fact, I may be wrong. I don't think he struck him dead. I think that's the time when the earth opened up and swallowed him. I believe that's it. Trying to serve God on my own terms. So, the way of Cain, what is that? When you and I try to approach God in our own way, what's Balaam's era? When we try to use God for our own personal gain. Korah's rebellion, trying to serve God on my own terms, the way that I want to do it, live my life the way I want to. Now, with all three of these, just think about this for a minute. I think it's pretty cool that I was studying this trying to approach God my own way. Jesus said, I am the way. Trying to use God for my own personal gain. Jesus said, I am the truth. Not being dishonest about trying to, my motivations, right? He goes, I am the truth. I'm the way, I'm the truth. And then trying to serve God on my own terms. He's like, no, I'm the life. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. See, if you and I will stick with Jesus, nothing new under the sun, Jesus, you're the only way, and I'm going to follow you. Not, not, not coming to you my way. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to follow Jesus. I am the truth, that my heart is pure, my motivation is pure, why I do what I do. No, no dishonest gain. I'm not trying to cut corners just to try to make some cash. Truth, honesty. I am the way, Jesus said. I am the truth. And I am the life. We discover life the way it's really meant to be lived. Not trying to serve God on my own terms. That, that was what Korah did. That was what his rebellion was all about. But embracing Jesus Jude's talking about his half-brother, who's also the son of God, fully man and fully God. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. There's a powerful punch packed in this, this short book of the Bible, Jude. You and I are called to contend for the faith. And right now what I want to do is I just want to pray. We'll, we'll finish the rest of this book next week because it really goes up on an upbeat, really fantastic, and I don't want to try to cram it all into one week. But would you just bow your heads with me right now? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. 
Thank you, Lord, for your word that, that warns us when we need to be warned. That there are really some things that are never going to change. That, that's the gospel. That's the fact that there are, there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And, Lord, there, there are temptations that can lead us to stray. We try to approach you on our own way. We, we try to use you for our own gain, and we try to serve you on our own terms. And Father, I just pray that we would learn from your word today. And, and Father, we would, we would decide we're going to follow Jesus closely, the way, the truth, and the life. And, and Lord, we just do pray your Holy Spirit speak to us right now as we put down the binoculars. We're not going to use your word for that. We're going to use the, your word for a microscope to look at our heart. Show us, Lord, if there's any way that we're not living the way that you want us to, the fullness of all that you have for us. And Lord, may we turn from it. May we repent. May we receive forgiveness from you. And may we live from this day forward the way you want us to. Right now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to give opportunity for, for, for you today, anyone, everyone, in the hearing of my voice, at a Poughkeepsie campus, online campus. If, if you're here in the hearing of my voice and you've not taken that first step of faith, to receive Jesus Christ, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. I'd like to lead you in a prayer right now. If you want to just open your heart up to him in this moment, because the Bible says that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So if you've never prayed that prayer of receiving Christ as your Savior as the way, the truth, and the life, coming to God that way, through Jesus. That's the gospel. I want to lead you in this prayer right now. You can repeat after me. Right now where you are, just say, Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. I receive Jesus Christ today as my Lord and as my Savior. Jesus, I ask you to guide me, lead me, direct me by your Spirit from this day forward, and I will follow you. Amen.